Well, good morning, Lake Murray. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, would you open it with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. So my wife, Allison, and I have three boys, and uh, back over Thanksgiving, we experienced our first broken bone as a family. My middle son, Max, uh, broke his arm over Thanksgiving, uh, over the Thanksgiving holidays, and this was about a week after we had bought them a trampoline for Christmas. And so the first thing the orthopedist says when you see him with about a broken arm is no trampolines. So we have this trampoline at our house in a box that our kids got for Christmas that sometimes I let them go out and look at and just imagine what it would be like to jump on that trampoline, right? We gave it to them. It's something that is theirs. They possess it, but they can't fully enjoy it yet. It is something they possess, but it is not fully experienced. This whole month, we have been walking through a series entitled Made New, Experiencing New Life in Christ. And we've been studying the first part of Romans chapter 6. And we understand this tension that my kids feel every day about the trampoline, the tension of living in the already and the not yet of the spiritual experience. Paul is trying to answer this question. Why do we who have been set free from sin continue to walk in it? And it's because we know we live in the already, not yet. Christ has purchased our forgiveness. We are set free and yet still there is this tension within us that we do what we ought not and don't want to do. You see, we believe the promise of new life that we have received through being united to Christ by faith. And we recognize the power of new life that we have through his death and his resurrection. That's what we've talked about these last several weeks. But we still wrestle daily with the temptation to sin, with the temptation to go back to our old habits, to our old patterns, to our old ways and our old gods. The Apostle Paul has been laboring really throughout this chapter, but all throughout the book of Romans to answer this question for his readers. And some, we learned at the beginning of this chapter, were concerned that that Paul's message of salvation by grace through faith would actually have the adverse effect, that it would actually lead people back into sin, to think that because God saves me by his grace, now I can do whatever I want. But Paul has exposed this error. And he teaches that anyone who thinks that grace is a license to sin has misunderstood grace and the cost of what Jesus spent to procure it for us. And so as we complete our series this morning, I want to dig into the practical response to ongoing temptation in the life of the Christian. And this is a reality for all of us. One of the things that I am certain of is that no one in this room, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, until we are with him, we will continue to battle against our sin and continue to fight the temptation. However, this reality 
that the war rages on in our soul should not discourage us. And it shouldn't cause us to despair. Rather, we should take heart this morning that we do not fight the battle against sin alone. And the Holy Spirit has not only given us the tools necessary to defend our hearts against sin, but to actually go on the offensive against our sin. And we are certain that the victory, the final victory, has already been won by Christ. That's what we sang this morning. I'm fighting a battle that you have already won. But though he has won it, we know that the battle rages. And so my hope this morning is that as we finish this section of Romans chapter 6, is that this would encourage every believer in the room, every follower of Christ, myself included, to make it our purpose each and every day to wage holy war against our sins. So if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 12 and read through verse 14. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word and we thank you for your spirit. And we pray, Father, that as we study this passage this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive that which you have for us by your spirit and through your word this morning. Help us to see, Father, that the war against sin is one worth waging and one that we fight in the power of the spirit. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I want us to ask three questions of our text this morning. These three questions will provide a guide, if you will, for our time together. Here are the three questions we want to ask from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. First, what are we called to do? Here, Paul is drawing his thought to a conclusion. We've looked at the promise of new life. We've looked at the power of new life. And this morning, Paul wants to talk about the practice of new life. What are we called to do, those of us who have been raised to new life in Christ? Secondly, how are we to accomplish it? What are we called to do? How are we to accomplish it? Not only does Paul tell us what to do, but the scriptures show us the power that we have to do the things that God has called us to do. And third, why can we have confidence that it can be done? Why does this not feel like an exercise in futility? Why can we have confidence that it can be done? And what I hope we'll see this morning as we study this passage together is this, that we practice the promise and the power of new life. We practice the promise and the power of new life by fighting sin and living in obedience to Christ. That we practice the promise and the power of new life that we've talked about in the last several weeks by fighting sin and living in obedience to Christ. Let's begin here. What are we called to do? In verse 12, Paul writes... Let not sin, therefore, reign 
in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul goes back to the beginning of his argument in the first part of this chapter to initiate this command. You remember back in verse six, he writes, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then in verse 11 that we looked at two weeks ago, he says, you then must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have died to sin. Now, we have gone to great lengths to try to explain and understand what it means that we have died to sin. It doesn't mean that we will no longer sin or that sin no longer has any influence or temptation to us, but what it means is that sin no longer has authority over us or the rule over us to make us do what it will. It doesn't mean that we won't sin, but it means that we don't have to. By our new life in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can resist the temptation to sin. It doesn't mean that we can't or won't, only that we don't have to. And because we are no longer under sin's authority, then we should no longer allow sin to determine our actions or our attitudes, which brings us to the point of this verse, verse 12. Paul calls on the church to not only resist sin, but he calls on the church to rise in rebellion against it. That not only has Christ given us the power to resist temptation, but he has given us the power now to be able to rebel against or to take the fight to our sin, if you will. And I think many Christians continue to struggle in overcoming sin and temptation for this very reason, because we often perceive our battle against sin as a passive work of resistance rather than an active work of rebellion. That, that we think about fighting sin as just fortifying our defenses and standing strong against temptation rather than actually taking the fight to our sin. Uh, so right after Christmas, uh, I got on the scale, which was a mistake, and I started to like think, okay, it's you, like you, I've, uh, I call it my winter coat. I put on my like winter coat and it was time to start changing some habits, right? Now, what do I have to do in that moment? If I look at that and I go, okay, it's time for me to get a little healthier. It's time for me to lose a little bit of the Christmas weight. What I don't do is just stop eating, right? Like I can't just stop eating. I have to actually change the way that I eat. And some of us, this is important, some of us, when we think about resisting temptation, we just think of it solely as I've just got to stop sinning. I've just got to resist this temptation rather than what are holy habits that need to replace this sinfulness? You see, if we, as followers of Jesus, are dead to sin and alive in Christ, then we are free from the reign of sin. And it's particularly because we are free from the authority and the reign of sin that we must fight against it. 
And the fight is not merely white-knuckling and resisting temptation. Rather, in the ongoing battle against sin, the goal is not just to stop sinning, but rather to pursue Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 13. This is what he says. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So Paul says, not only do we seek to go to war against our sin, but we pursue righteousness. And here we have two clear commands. One of them is a positive and one of them is a negative. We have a don't do this and a do this. The first part of verse 13, he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Here, Paul is using the the imagery of the human body. And so the members of the body, the, the hands, the feet, the arms, the legs, Paul says, do not present the members of the body to sin. But he's talking here more about just the physical members. Certainly he's talking about the physical members, but when Paul says, do not present the members of your body to sin, it's encompassing all of our bodily faculties and capacities. And so included in this verse is the idea of our emotions, our thoughts, our attitudes. Paul says, do not present your bodies, do not present yourself to sin to be used as an instrument of unrighteousness. And this language is important too because Paul says that when you present yourself to sin, your mind, your body, your hands, your feet, when you present your bodies to sin, sin then will use your body as an instrument or a tool. It's, it's military language. It's used as a weapon. And so what Paul is saying here in essence is do not give sin the ammunition of your body to do with as it pleases. He may be hearkening back here to a well-known proverb, Proverbs chapter six, verses 18 and 19, where the writer of Proverbs says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. We see here this imagery of presenting our bodies and our faculties and our members to sinfulness. You see, what we know about sin and what we know about our flesh, what we know about the adversary, Satan, is that sin wants to use you as an instrument of your own destruction. Sin wants to use you as an instrument of your own destruction and the destruction of others if it can. And so our recognition of this fact is is important. It's important for us to know that Satan hates you and that your sinful flesh conspires against you to destroy you. 
And so this knowledge is important, but, but it's not enough for us simply to know that our sin conspires against us and to seek to simply go on the defensive against our sin. No, no, no. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 13. He says that it's not simply enough for us to go on the defensive. We have to actually press into something else. And so he says, don't do this. But then he says, do present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And so Paul says, rather than presenting our capacities and our faculties to sin, we present them to God to be used for his glory, for our joy, and for others' good. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul will say it this way in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, Old Testament worship involved the offering of animal sacrifices, but now, under the new covenant, worship involves offering our entire lives to God. Uh, Tim Keller, in his tremendous little concise commentary on Romans, says, it would be a mistake to think that the main way we live our new life is simply through looking at sin and its desires and saying to ourselves, don't. Our new life in Christ is about living positively and proactively, about do. God's kingdom reigns within us and expresses itself through us as we obey him. You see, Jesus died and rose. And by faith, we believe that we have joined him in his death and in his resurrection. Therefore, we are to regard ourselves now as dead to sin and alive to God. And those of us who are alive to God, we offer to him our whole life, our whole body as a sacrifice of praise. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just change one part about you. It doesn't just change where you go on Sunday, and it doesn't just change one spiritual aspect of your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms all of us. There's no part of us that is inoculated from gospel transformation. And so the call to salvation that we see Jesus offering in the New Testament is a call to die to ourselves, to our old way of living, to our sinful flesh. And in dying to ourselves, we find new life in Christ. And this life we now live, we live for the one who has died for us. And so why can we have confidence that we can wage war against sin and walk in this new life that Christ has promised to us? We see here in verse 14 that we are under new ownership. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Here, Paul undergirds these commands with a promise, and it's this promise that makes all the difference. We can go to war against our sin and pursue righteousness, pursue obedience with confidence, even though every day we will fail and we will falter. Even though the battle will not be over on this side of eternity, we can still battle every single day, confident that we are no longer under the law, 
but under grace. You may say, well, what does it mean to be under grace? John Stott, the great theologian, says, to be under grace is to acknowledge our dependence on the work of Christ for salvation. And so to be justified rather than condemned and thus set free. I read this morning in our welcome time from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we have been set free from the power and the punishment of sin. But because we know we are free from the power and the condemnation of sin, we can now resist it and rebel against it with a renewed strength. And so this truth that we are free from the power of sin ought to then motivate within us a desire to resist. And more so than a desire to resist, a desire to rebel, to fight back against our sinful flesh. And Paul here is answering the question that he asked in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? And Paul says, certainly not. That grace doesn't give us a license to sin. That if we think, well, I've been saved by God's grace, so now I can live however I want. It shows us that we haven't understand grace. But if we've understood grace, that we are now saved by God's undeserved favor shown to us in Jesus Christ, that same grace that saves us gives us the power to oppose our sin. You see, because we are under grace, we make war on our sin and walk in obedience to Jesus' commands. We're free. Um, I, I coach uh, rec league soccer, so like six-year-old soccer, and I've coached for a couple of years, and a couple of years ago, I had a little team, and we got there before the game started, and I noticed that the other team didn't have enough players, and by the time it was game time, they only had four players, and so they had to forfeit the game, and we had to just decide, but we were all there, and they're all, you know, ready to get their snow cones and stuff at the end of the game, so it's like, well, let's just play for a little bit, and so we kind of divided up the teams, and it was the best game that my team had played all season. Like it was just, they played incredible. Why? Because the pressure of having to win the game was off. They could just be free. And so all of a sudden they were like moving the ball in a way that I'd never seen them move the ball. And they're scoring goals in ways that I'd never seen them score goals. There's no pressure on them to win the game. The game has already been won and they are free. And in their freedom, they play like they're free. And so, brothers and sisters, we have been free from the power and the authority of sin. And so live like people who are free. Let us not just simply attempt to resist the temptation to sin, but let us, as those who are no longer under the law but under grace, take the fight to our sinful flesh. Christ has secured the victory. We are under his grace Therefore, we play in the freedom knowing that the outcome is secure. How do we do this in our daily life? Uh, two weeks ago, we got some help from an old dead guy by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And this morning, we're going to get some more help from an old dead guy. And his name is John Owen. 
John Owen was a 17th century English pastor and theologian. There's his picture right there. He's a dapper young, young man. His sermons and his writings, they've been used over the last 400 years of church history to encourage the saints in numerous ways. Theologians and pastors like Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, Jerry Bridges, Sinclair Ferguson, all of these incredible preachers and pastors have heaped praise upon the work of John Owen. But perhaps Owen's most helpful little book is a small book entitled The Mortification of Sin. Now, mortification is a theological term for putting to death, okay? You can use that later on this week. Mortification of sin. And it was written in 1656. And although the book now is 400 plus, or is almost 400 years old, it is still one of the best, most insightful dealings with the topic of waging war on our sin in obedience to Jesus Christ. The entire book is a reflection on Romans chapter eight, verse 13, where Paul writes, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Owen sets out in this small little book to encourage believers that they must fight to put sin to death as their sin is actively seeking to destroy them. And he famously quips early on in the book, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That none of us are in neutral. That we're either taking the fight to our sin or we're allowing our sin to take the fight to us. And Owen wants his readers to understand three things. Number one, that since believers are free from the condemning power of sin, which we've been studying here in Romans chapter six, that they should then make it their daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin, which is what Paul is saying here. Since we have been freed from the condemning power of sin, We ought to then go to war each and every day against the indwelling sin. Secondly, he wants his readers to know that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish this work. That this is not a work that we can fight. This is not a battle we fight in our own strength. That it's only the Spirit in us who can accomplish this work. And then three, he wants believers spiritual strength and encouragement. He says that believers spiritual strength and encouragement the joy we feel in Christ, the confidence that we feel in walking with him, that it comes directly from the daily work of mortifying our sin. Meaning that putting sin to death, warring against our sin, should be a daily part of the Christian experience. And that if it is not, we will often find ourselves in varying levels of spiritual dryness and depression. And so so what actually is mortification? We can start by saying what mortification is not. Mortification is not conquering sin. We know that we will never fully conquer sin in this life. We know that Christ has conquered sin and that one day we will be made perfect when we are with him but we know that it is never fully conquering sin. Mortification is not fully conquering sin. Number two, it's not concealing our sin. It's not making ourselves look a lot better on the outside for people's appearances while still kind of raging on the inside with all of this secret sin. That's not what mortification is. It's not cleaning the outside of the cup, Jesus says, 
and leaving the inside filthy. It's not done. Mortification is not complete when we simply feel better or when we've stopped one specific action or pattern of sin for a season. Sometimes we can get the upper hand on a sin for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And mortification is not simply winning one battle on one day over temptation. No, no, no. Owens defines mortification as the habitual weakening of sin through constant warfare and contention against the flesh. And that's a very 1656 way to say mortification of sin is the daily work of going to war against our sin. Meaning that every day, just as every day we would read the word, as we would pray, every day we seek to resist and kill sin in our hearts and lives where we find it. And as we do this, we gradually see the attraction of sin weaken in our eyes and hearts. I, I talked a little bit about uh, kind of changing some of my eating habits after Christmas. And, and one of the other things that we often do when we want to change those habits, we wanna, it's not just that we stop eating, it's that we change what we eat, but we also begin to work out. And so I started back again in just this kind of regular routine of working out. And any of you who have ever have a daily kind of rhythm of working out, staying in shape, staying healthy, physically fit, you know that it doesn't just happen after one workout, right? It's not like I go to the gym one time and lift a couple weights and work up a good sweat and then walk out and then go, all right, I'm good. Good for the next year, right? Think I'm gonna be, no, that's, that's certainly not. And certainly we wouldn't expect to see incredible results after one workout or after one week of working out. But as we make that a daily part of our lives, as we make that a weekly rhythm and routine, over time we begin to see significant results until something which at one point may have been unthinkable to us, the fact that we would actually enjoy working out, something that was once an obligation then becomes a joy. And Owen says the same is true in our spiritual life, that as each and every day, what may feel at the beginning like drudgery, of fighting, resisting our sin, Owen says that each and every day that we do it, that we make this commitment in the power of the Spirit to zone in on our hearts and eradicate sin in our lives where we find it, Owen says that over a period of time, those sins that right now seem so heavy and so attractive and so influential, those sins begin to lose their power. Of our own strength, we will not be able to, nor do we have the desire to kill sin. And Owen wants to go to great lengths to emphasize that killing sin is done by the Spirit. If there's any desire or ability in us to not only resist but to mortify our sin, it's because the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in us. And this is important. Don't miss this. You see, because Satan wants you to believe that you are unable to kill that sin in your life. Right now, that sin that you are thinking about that maybe has plagued you or beset you for weeks or months or years, Satan wants you to believe this morning that you will never be able to overcome that sin, that you'll never be able to kill it, that you'll always be stuck in this habit or you'll always be stuck in this pattern. But Paul says here, the scriptures teach that if the spirit lives in you, the power that raised Christ from the dead works in you to kill sin and to walk in new life. And we practice the promise and the power of new life 
by fighting sin and living in obedience to Christ. So as we close this morning, how do we set about mortifying our sin and practicing our new life? How do we do this? I just wanna give you four practical applications and we'll be done, one minute each. Four kind of practical ways that we mortify our sin and practice our new life. First, we have to begin by taking sin seriously. We have to take our sin seriously. Many Christians lose the daily battle against sin because they do not take their sin seriously enough. How do we know this? We know this by the way that we refer to our sin as anything but sin. We call it our struggles, our challenges, our, our problem, etc. We, we want to talk about sin in a way that softens the blow. But we will not do the daily work of killing our sin without taking sin seriously and seeing sin for what it is. Sin is cancer eating away at our spiritual life. And any aggressive cancer requires an equally aggressive treatment plan. We have to take it seriously. Listen what Owen says in The Mortification of Sin. He says, where sin, through the neglect of mortification, and so this idea where sin just festers, where we just kind of allow it to sit, where we just allow it to kind of be stoked within our hearts, where sin, through the neglect of mortification, gets a considerable victory, it breaks the bones of the soul. And it makes a man weak, sick, and ready to die so that he cannot look up. And when poor creatures will take blow after blow, wound after wound, foil after foil, and never rouse themselves to a vigorous opposition, can they expect anything but to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and that their souls should bleed to death. And many of you this morning have come into this place feeling like your bones have been broken and that your soul is bleeding to death under the power of unconfessed sin. So how do we war against it? We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ, by grace through faith in Jesus, we've been set free from that sin, and yet it continues to rage in us. Secondly, we not only take sin seriously, but Owen will talk about suffocating our sin. We kill our sin not by raging against it, if you will, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and making a commitment that I'm not gonna do it this time. No, 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 no. We kill our sin not in that way. We kill our sin instead, Owen says, by smothering it. Imagine your sin like a grease fire. If you've ever had a grease fire in your kitchen, you know what's the worst thing that you can throw on a grease fire? Water, right? It just makes the sin. And so a lot of times we see our sin and we decide that we're gonna go to war against our sin and our own strength and our own commitment. We come and we weep and we're broken and we recommit. We tell Jesus, I'll never do this again. And then three days later, we're right back there, right? We're trying to throw water on a grease fire. The Bible never talks about this idea of rededication or, or, or pulling ourselves up. No, 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 the Bible often talks about repentance and repentance begins when we look away from our sin and look to Christ. 
Dane Ortland, in his tremendous little book, Deeper, says that we feed sin by coddling it, by pining after it, by daydreaming about it, by giving vent to it, but we suffocate it by redirecting our gaze to Christ. And when we talk about setting our eyes on Christ, we're not just talking about our attention, but our affections. We set our eyes and our hearts and our minds on Christ. How? Through the word and through prayer, through recommitting ourselves each and every day to the battle against sin. There's no special technique this morning that I can teach you, no secret to mortifying your sin other than what the scriptures have already taught us. We simply come every day and we gaze at Christ through the reading of his word and we marvel at the wonder of God's love and his grace that's been given to us in Christ that we experience by the spirit and we return that praise to him in prayer in a life lived in obedience, you see the word and, the pr- and prayer are food and fuel to walk in our new life. Third, fighting is winning. Listen to me. This is an encouragement. If you're fighting against your sin, you're winning. If you're fighting, you're winning. If you didn't love Jesus, if you weren't filled with the Spirit, if you were not alive in Christ, you wouldn't care a flip about mortifying your sin. And so take heart this morning that this desire that you feel in you to kill sin, the frustration that you feel when you fail, this longing that you sense to be free from an indwelling or besetting sin and to honor Jesus, these are the cries of life within you. And so don't give up. Don't despair. All is not lost. If you are in Christ, remember that no number of failures or falls can move you out of his love or his mercy. His mercy is greater than our sin. And our ongoing, continuing fight against sin in our life is a sign of his presence in you. So take heart, believer. Keep fighting. Even when we sin, we confess, we repent, we make things right with those that we have wronged, and we move on to fight another day. And in so doing, we remember the heart of Christ. We remember the heart of Christ. Listen to this verse in Ephesians 5. Chapter five, we often think about this as a marriage text, and it is, but this will give great insight to the way that Jesus regards sinners. Ephesians chapter five, verses 29 and 30. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. For many of us, we do not confront our sin honestly. We don't confront our sin honestly. Even this morning, the temptation is not for us to deal with our sin honestly because we believe that Jesus' disposition towards us is one of just ongoing disappointment, that he's just standing in heaven with his arms crossed, just going like, you've messed it up again. Like, you should be past this. Like, get over this. And so we think in our minds this morning as the Spirit convicts us of sin that certainly Jesus is tired of our failures. Surely he's fed up with our faltering. He can't want to hear from us again in confession. But brothers and sisters, this is not the picture of the heart of Christ in the Scriptures. Isaiah says that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, that he has a heart for sinners and for sufferers. Why? Ephesians chapter five says, because they are members. We are members of his body. 
I'll close with this. I've learned this over the last two months as I've watched my son deal with his broken arm. I mentioned Max, my my middle son, had broke his arm back over Thanksgiving. I've I've learned about the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers in the way that I've watched my seven-year-old deal with his broken arm. You know what he does with his broken arm? He nurtures it. He cares for it. He's protecting that arm. He's got a cast on it. But even now, as it begins to heal slowly, he, he protects it. He gives it time and space to heal. He doesn't go right back out to do the things that he wants to do. Why? Because that broken member is a part of him. It's not something that's outside of him. It's his. It's a member of his body. And when it's broken, he wants to give it the time that it needs to heal. And he wants to protect it and care for it and nurture it. And brothers and sisters, in the same way, those of you who would come to Christ this morning, broken by your sin, you will find him to be a gracious savior because you are a member of his body. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And he cares for you so much that he convicts you of the indwelling power of sin and he beckons you to something greater. Something far better than anything that sin can promise. He calls us to his love and his mercy and his grace. And in so doing, in experiencing that love and that mercy and that grace, we're free to fight against the power and the presence of indwelling sin. So this morning, I want to give just the opportunity for you to do what you need to do with the Holy Spirit. Some of you this morning, the Spirit has convicted you of sin, and that is God's grace and kindness to you. Don't run away from this moment. And so if that's you this morning, and you would love just in a moment to have someone pray with you, to have someone encourage you, our response team will be here. There'll be folks in each corner of the room, and we stand to sing. If you just want to slip out from where you are, and ask for prayer. One of these folks would love to meet with you and pray with you and encourage you, but don't miss this opportunity for what the Spirit is doing in your heart and in your life. Brothers and sisters, we practice the power and the promise of new life by doing exactly this, by confessing and repenting of our sin, by walking in obedience to Christ and finding him to be a sure Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. We thank you that we can come to you, not by our own strength, not by our own merit, but by the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And so I pray for each sinner and sufferer in this room this morning, all of us, Father, on some level are dealing with the brokenness of our sinfulness. And so, Father, I pray if there's any in this room who's never put their faith and trust and hope in you, that today they might find forgiveness from sin and turning their eyes upon Jesus. But I pray for the believers in this room, those of us who have experienced both the promise and the power of new life, but Father, we struggle each and every day to put it into practice. God, I pray that today you would show yourself to be a kind, merciful, gracious Savior, one who we throw ourselves on in desperate need of, and Father, we find grace and mercy in times of need. Father, I pray that we would be quick to confess and repent of sin. And that we would recognize that though our sin is great, your mercy is more. 
We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing and respond?